Today's Old Testament reading is Psalm 85, verses 1 to 7, and can be found on page 595 and 596 of the Church Bibles. Psalm 85, verses 1 to 7. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your feast anger. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Today's New Testament reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and can be found on page 1,235 of the Church Bibles. Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the teachers. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in a word of prayer. Lord our God, through your spirit, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. In Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. This morning, let's start our discussion of the church at Sardis by talking about something called thanatosis. Thanatosis. We all know what thanatosis is, right? Anyone? Well, let me explain. Probably not all of us. Let me explain. So some shark species engage in thanatosis, as do some snake varieties. Guinea pigs and rabbits, wild ducks and domestic chickens engage in it as well, as do Japanese quail and Virginia possums. So what is it? What is thanatosis? Well, maybe, just maybe, that mentioned lastly of Virginia possums has given you a clue, a clue to what thanatosis is all about. Has anyone here ever heard the English language phrase, playing possum, playing possum? Anyone? Someone? Okay. I guess we're not hand raisers. (laughs) Well, playing possum is pretending you're dead. 
And pretending you're dead is what thanatosis is all about. Thanatosis is when a creature gives the the appearance of being dead even when it is very much alive. These animals I mentioned, sharks, snakes, rabbits, and others, the the reason they engage in thanatosis is mainly for the purpose of escaping predators. You see, most predators prefer their prey more alive than dead. So if the prey can convince the predator that they are dead, the predators will look elsewhere for their dinner. Hence, thanatosis, appearing dead when you are in fact very much alive. Okay, so thinking now about our passage this morning, our passage from Revelation 3. I wish in a way that Jesus, when he is giving his performance review of this church in Sardis, the performance review we're going to look at this morning. I wish that Jesus were talking about this church in Sardis in terms of thanatosis. I wish he were talking about a church very much alive, but somehow appearing to be dead. Instead, though, instead, though, as we'll find out, he talks about this church in Sardis more in terms of something we might call zoiosis. Zoiosis. Now, don't worry if you don't recognize that word zoiosis. It's not actually, it's a word. It's a word I've made up uh, for our purposes this morning. I invented it. Preachers get to do that kind of thing, right? But it's a word I think, this zoiosis is a word I think that in some way represents what the situation is there in Sardis. I should say, too, that zoiosis is related in a way to thanatosis, but it's definitely not the same as it. Confused? Show of hands? Yes, I can imagine. Let me do some explaining, and I think it will become more clear what we're dealing with here in the church at Sardis. First, a little background information. If you're joining us for the first time in a while, or even for the first time ever, for that matter, I should explain that our sermons lately have been uh, those considering the seven churches of Revelation, the seven churches addressed by Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3. As we've seen in this sermon series, Jesus has been giving performance reviews to these churches. He's been assessing them uh, on their beliefs and practices, on their attitudes and behaviors. As many of you know, some of these performance reviews have been quite harsh, and some of them have been quite gentle. Some of them quite critical, others quite complimentary. All of them, though, all of them, I believe, have helped us understand what Jesus desires of his church. Not just the church in the ancient world, but his church in the modern world, too. Up this week is the church at Sardis, and Sardis was known then and is known now to a certain extent for their king, a very rich king, King Crucis. Have any of you heard that term, as rich as Crucis? I think it's a term in German as well, right? Crucis of Sardis is being referred to when we talk about being as rich as Crucis. Crucis had his seat of power there in Sardis. And just as Crucis was rich, 
so was the city of Sardis. Sardis was apparently a, a town made rich by textiles and trade, and its citizens were said to have lived in relative wealth and comfort compared to the other citizens of the Roman Empire at that time. Yes, the, the, the good people of Sardis, they enjoyed the good life there in Sardis. And this included, apparently, those in the Christian church there. So it's now to these good people living the good life in Sardis that Jesus speaks these words of introduction in Revelation 3. He says this, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, we can seldom be absolutely positively certain about the symbolism presented in such language. But it is thought by many commentators that the seven spirits, which Jesus says he holds here, it is thought that these seven spirits are quite possibly the multifaceted spirit of God as spoken about in Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 11, we read that the Messiah, he will possess a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and power, a spirit of the knowledge of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the delight of the Lord. Seven spirits in all. Such a multifaceted spirit, Jesus is perhaps saying, is, is whom he had his, has at his disposal to empower him, to enlighten him. But it's not only the spirit that he holds. We go on further to read, it's angels too. That's in the introduction as well, if we look back at the, the verse. The seven stars that Jesus mentions in the second half of that verse they're thought to symbolize the seven archangels over which Jesus has command. So, clearly, this introduction that Jesus gives of himself here is meant to establish his authority. It's meant to establish his authority as the spirit-empowered ruler of heaven and earth. He's someone that those people in the church at Sardis need to listen to and obey. On to the review itself. If you've been with us again for some of these other performance reviews that Jesus has given, you'll remember perhaps that in typical review fashion, performance review fashion, Jesus will start out his review of a church with something nice to say about the church. He commends the believers in the church for, for one thing or another, that they're doing well. Well, that is, except if you're in the church at Sardis. Noteworthy here in his review of Sardis is that the church here gets no commendation at the start. They just get a complaint. No well done. Just shape up. This is what Jesus says. I'm at the middle of verse 1 now. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Remember the animals I mentioned earlier? Remember the discussion of thanatosis? Well, thanatosis is actually the opposite of what's going on here in the church in Sardis. Instead, it's zoiosis that's going on here, that second term I invented and used. 
Well, thanatosis is the appearance of death. Thanatos is the Greek word for death. Zoeosis, at least for our discussion today, is the appearance of life. Zoe, the Greek word for life. It's zoeosis, because what's happening there in Sardis is not an alive church appearing dead. It's a dead church appearing alive. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead, Jesus says. Apparently, apparently, unlike everyone else who seems to be quite impressed with the church at Sardis, note Jesus' comment here that they have a reputation of being alive. Unlike everyone else who seems quite impressed with that church, Jesus is not impressed at all. He considers them dead on arrival as a church. Lifeless. So why this pronouncement about Sardis, this pronouncement from Jesus, that it is dead? Well, we can never be absolutely sure of the details of the particulars. But based on some clues in the rest of the passage here, and and from what historians and Bible scholars know of the, the historical situation there in Sardis, it suggested that underneath a veneer of respectability and decency, underneath a veneer of vitality and vibrancy, there's really not much good happening at that church. We get the impression that the believers there are apparently not paying attention to what is important. That they are not really doing what counts. There's a reference there to unfinished deeds. They're not involved in the right kind of pursuits. Not concerned about the right kinds of things. Their priorities are apparently not Christ's priorities. What they value is apparently not what Christ values. It seems very possible then that like the good citizens of Sardis themselves, those in the church there are perhaps just a bit too comfortable and a bit too complacent. A bit too comfortable and a bit too complacent to be a faithful and fruitful church. We can all imagine this, yes? We can imagine that Living the good life there in Sardis might have made those in the church too occupied with their own pursuits, too interested in their own affairs, too distracted by all their pleasures and too consumed by all their pastimes, and thus too relaxed in their approach toward God, too loose in their practice of faith, just going through the motions comfortably, complacently. Spiritually speaking, it seems these people in the church at Sardis are asleep at the wheel, asleep at the wheel, so to speak. And so it's no surprise then the correction we hear from Jesus is this. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. So these comfortable and complacent believers in Sardis need to wake up. 
and recommit themselves to being the church whom Christ has called them to be. Whatever flame of vibrancy and vitality that is left in that church, they need to rekindle, they need to fan it before it too is extinguished. They need to remember what they had been taught by the apostles as as it concerns being a, a faithful and fruitful church. And then they need to go do it. And then they need to go be it. They need to rouse themselves from their spiritual sleep. And if they don't, If they don't, this is what Jesus says. It's a negative consequence that he lays out here. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. So where have we heard language like this before? Actually, many places. But some of us, I'm sure, can think of other places in Scripture where we hear language, Jesus coming unexpectedly. Specifically, too, like a thief. Well, one place, of course, is Matthew 24, where Jesus compares his return to earth as being like a thief breaking into a house. It will be sudden, and it will be unexpected. So when Jesus tells the church, that that comfortable and complacent church in Sardis, that he's going to come like a thief, he's talking about judgment here, isn't he? He's talking about judgment, a day of reckoning. That will come when he returns suddenly and unexpectedly, like a thief breaking in. Not coincidentally, uh, Jesus' warning here of a sudden and unexpected day of reckoning, this would certainly have reminded the believers there at Sardis of something they had actually already experienced as a city. In 546 BC, comfortable and complacent, Sardis had been conquered by the Medes and Persians by way of a surprise attack. Comfortable and complacent Sardis was, like the church at Sardis, asleep at the wheel. They presumed safety and security when instead they should have been fearing confrontation and assault. In this way, Jesus has used the the history of the city of Sardis to warn the church at Sardis to warn them that this day of reckoning could happen again. But it's not all bad news for Sardis. Apparently there are some in the church at Sardis who are being who they should be, doing what they should do. And Jesus gives them words of praise here, using the metaphor of clean clothes to describe their dedicated discipleship. Here's the positive consequence. Verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. So as you may know, in scripture, white clothes often symbolize, symbolizes saintly behavior, saintly behavior. And so the people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, who, who have kept them white, they are those in the church who have remained faithful and fruitful followers of Jesus Christ there. They have not become too comfortable. They have not become too complacent. They have persevered, persevered. And as a result, Jesus promises them that in the new heavens and the new earth, they will walk side by side with him. But that's not the only positive consequence that Jesus lays out for those in the church who have been vigilant and intentional about their discipleship. Jesus goes on to say this about them. 
He says, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Their names will never be removed from the book of life, Jesus says. A reference to this figurative book that contains the names of all those who belong to Jesus Christ and will live with him forever. Their names will always be in this book, Jesus says. And Jesus will identify them as his own before God and before the angels. So that's Jesus' message to the first century church at Sardis. What's his message now to the 21st century church in Zurich and beyond? Well, let's think first about that phenomenon of a church appearing to be alive, but actually being dead. This can happen as much to a 21st century church as it can happen to a first century church, yeah? I wonder this, how would you, how would you assess the aliveness of a church? How would you describe what an alive church looks like? So, I'm going to pull out the, the new guy card here. I've only been in Switzerland about a month. So I don't know really how this is viewed here in Zurich or in Switzerland. How people think about aliveness in a church. Can't say what most people think uh, makes a church look alive here. But from my experience elsewhere, in the United States and outside the United States, I might suggest this. Maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, maybe it's applicable to the setting, maybe it's not applicable, maybe you'll just roll your eyes and say, that American doesn't know what he's talking about again. But maybe this, see if this makes any sense, what I'm going to say now. I might suggest that as often the, the three Ps that would make a church appear alive to both people inside the church and outside the church. And those three Ps that make people think a church is alive are programs, People and property. Programs, people, and property. If a church has many programs, lots of people, and an impressive property, the assumption is perhaps that such a church must be alive. It must be alive. After all, it's got all those people, all that nice property, all those programs. These all suggest, to the human mind at least, a certain vitality, a certain vibrancy, in a church. After all, there's the crowds, the building, the events, the meetings, the activities, the projects, the initiatives, the buzz, the chatter. But maybe, just maybe, maybe, just maybe, sometimes this kind of vibrancy and vitality is falsely attributed, just as it was falsely attributed there to the church at Sardis. And this church at Sardis was possibly, because of its wealth, one of the most impressive and noteworthy Christian churches around. We don't know for sure, but it could have been because of its situation, its setting. The reality, of course, 
as we think about the church in the 21st century and the church in the first century. The reality, of course, is that numerous programs, lots of people, and impressive properties might in fact signify very little about the aliveness of a church. At least in terms of how Jesus Christ defines aliveness. And in fact, in some cases even, these things might even signify just the opposite of aliveness. They might signify deadness. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because they might signify deadness, for example, the kind of deadness that comes from a church valuing what the world values. Defining success as the world defines success. Celebrating what the world celebrates. If a church's priorities are all about size and scale and not about truth and love, if a church's priorities are all about building its kingdom and not Christ's kingdom, if a church's priorities are all about being the it church rather than Christ's church, it can be a very dead church indeed even if it looks very much alive. Of course, I should add this here now. I should add here that churches without a lot of people, without a lot of programs, without a great property, they have no claim to aliveness by virtue of not having these things. They aren't somehow more inherently pleasing to Christ because they're lesser in these areas. No, in the final analysis, what counts, whether you have 3, 30, 300, 3,000, 30,000 people in your church, whether you have an impressive building, a humble building, or no building at all, whether you have lots of programs, a few programs, or not many, what counts is whether, by Christ's standards, you are being a faithful and fruitful church, the faithful and fruitful church that Christ has called his church to be. So what does such an alive church look like? What does such a faithful and fruitful church look like? Well, in Scripture, in particular in the New Testament, we find principles laid down for this. And so as Scripture is our guide, I'd like to just reflect for a little bit on what an alive church might look like in our time and place. What an alive church might look like in our culture, a culture in which the, the good life is enjoyed just as it was enjoyed in Sardis, a culture in which comfort and complacency exist as threats, just as they did in Sardis. So let me just briefly mention seven things here. Of course it was going to be seven, right? What other number could I use? Seven's the complete biblical number. Uh, seven things that are oriented toward our discussion of, of, of Sardis. Seven things that point to a church not simply going through the motions. I could have mentioned many, many things, a hundred things here. I've just picked a few that I think are particularly relevant for not being complacent and not being too comfortable. So, number one, a truly alive church is where the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. Not the gospel of the preacher, not the gospel of the church that particular church. Not the gospel of the culture. The gospel 
of Jesus Christ. Number two. A truly alive church is where the people of that church deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow Jesus. They do not ultimately seek their own gain through their involvement with the church, but the gain of Christ. They embrace the fact that the church ultimately does not exist for them, but the church exists, or but they exist for Christ's church and his kingdom. They exist for Christ's church and his kingdom. Number three, truly alive churches where worship, worship is mainly about worship. What a brilliant pastor, huh? <laughs> worship is about worship. A revelation this morning. Worship is about worship. Worship's not about marketing or promotion. It's not about hipness or nostalgia. It's not about creating fabulous experiences for people. It's not even about attracting new members. At least not primarily. Not primarily. No, worship is mainly about the worship of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number four, truly alive church is where, people who, is where people who enjoy power and influence in society, where those people choose through the power of the Holy Spirit to surrender at the door of the church their wants and their wishes, their preferences and their predilections, their causes and their crusades, their agendas and their ambitions. And instead, they allow themselves to be conformed together with other believers into the image of Christ. Number five, a truly alive church is where there is a focus on the reality of sin and the necessity of repentance. Now before you say amen, some of you I know are just about to, I'm talking about these things not just as sin and repentance applies to the people out there. I mean, you want to build a church with a lot of members. My personal opinion is you talk about the sin out there and people will flock to your church. No, a truly alive church is where there's a focus on the reality of sin and the necessity of repentance, not just as these things apply to the people out there, but as they apply to the people in here. Number six, a truly alive church is where the exalted in society are not exalted and where the humbled in society are not humbled. And number seven, a truly alive church is where love is practiced as Christ practiced it. Actively, fearlessly, generously, unconditionally, indiscriminately, perpetually. Love is not thrust upon the active church. 
It is initiated with gratitude by the church in response to Jesus' love for it. I could go on and on. I've left out some important things. I'm sure some of you will say, why? Why didn't you mention that? I agree with you. I agree with you already. I don't know what you're going to tell me, but I agree with you. I could have mentioned that. I should have mentioned that. I agree. It's not meant to be comprehensive, but just suggestive or illustrative. In the 21st century, as in the first century church, zoiosis, presenting oneself as alive while appearing dead, is a danger. It's a danger. Let me finish with this. We like the church at Sardis. We like the church at Sardis. Because of the society we live in and the culture we inhabit, we can so easily fall into complacency and comfort. We can so easily make the world's priorities our priorities, its values our values. We can fall asleep at the wheel, spiritually speaking, leaving ourselves open to attack and assault by the forces of evil. There's a better way, of course. And the better way is the way of the cross, the way of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the way of sacrifice and service. It's the way of love and peace. It's the way of obedience and truth. It's the way Jesus calls us to be as a church. And so whoever has ears, let him hear today what the Spirit says to the churches. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again, through your Son, Jesus Christ, you've given us tough words. You've given us challenging words this morning. And so we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would respond in love and hope and faith to these words, that we would be the church that you have called us to be. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.